0: Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the legal matters discussed on this show are not intended to be legal advice for our audience. If you do have a legal problem, it is important to marshal the facts and go speak to an attorney who has experience in that area of the law to get sensible advice. Additionally, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. With that said, I'd like to welcome to the show a new guest, Paul D. Trinkoff. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing very well. I really appreciate you coming in. Caveat, as in many cases, I have known Paul for a very long time. It's been a real privilege knowing Paul, and I met him first at the University of North Carolina Law School, lo these many years ago, and we've remained friends ever since that time. Paul is a partner or principal in the law firm of Miles and Stockbridge, which is one of the preeminent law firms here in the state of Maryland with many offices, and I believe dates back to 1932, which is the early part of my boyhood. (laughs) With that said, welcome to the show, Paul, and uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bob. Good to see you. We've only known each
1: other for 40 years. Only 40
0: years. so. So just generally, Paul, what is it that you
1: do? What is it that I do? I am a partner in the corporate and securities group at Miles and Stockbridge. Okay, I get involved in representing non-public businesses in the sense that I don't do securities work. Okay, we have other lawyers in our firm who do that. Uh, Some of my clients are public companies, but I or we don't do their securities work. I get involved in a lot of M and A transactions. What is that? Mergers and acquisitions. Okay, sales of business, sales of assets combinations, things of that sort. And I have a special expertise in commercial real estate, including some land development, some of which I do here in Howard County.
0: And doubtless, this is something that since boyhood you wanted to pursue.
1: No, this is something that has evolved over the years along a very long and winding path.
0: It's one of the things I wanted to touch on with you today because You know, the general purpose of the program is to acquaint people at HCC with different career options and directions. And there is some tendency, I think, for people to think that, you know, you should have this path. You know you want to be a a urologist when you're 10 years old kind of thing. And, you know, my experience and and the bulk of my guests' experience is not that. And I gather that this was not something you've thought about since boyhood.
1: No, this was not something I thought about since boyhood. And in my experience, having worked with and mentored a lot of younger lawyers, I think that I have kind of derived some general kind of common paths and ways in which uh, the career kind of evolves over time.
0: And is that applicable to just the law, or would you say generally to all
1: walks of life? I think it have general applicability. Obviously, certain fields, you want to be a doctor, you know you're going to go to medical school. Of course, which of the various specialties you ultimately will focus down on, I think that's also part of the the evolution. So
0: in my experience, a lot of this is sort of coincidental or accidental. Is that yours
1: as well? Well, some of it is planned, but a lot of it does happen through luck, happenstance, and uh, just being in a certain place at a certain time. Kismet, we say. (laughs) So, for instance, I was a, a history major in college. I was at the University of Rochester in upstate New York. I did not have a definite career path as a history major, which is not a major that lends itself to too many definite career paths unless you want to be an academic in that field. I decided during my junior year that I would spend the summer between my junior and senior year, and I acquired an internship at the New York Civil Liberties Union Rochester office because I was thinking about applying to law school, and I just wanted to get a feel for what the milieu would be in a law office. And although I didn't know exactly what I was doing at the time, I now know that I was involved in a a large-scale discovery effort in a lawsuit against a local upstate New York school system claiming various types of discrimination. And I really enjoyed the atmosphere. I enjoyed the people I was working with. And I enjoyed the intellectual component of what they were doing. So after that, I decided to apply to law school. So just to
0: clarify, when we're talking about discovery, it's the process in a lawsuit where the parties on either side exchange information, correct?
1: That's correct. And I was involved in document production. I was one of the people who was looking through hundreds of boxes in a dusty warehouse trying to unearth the relevant facts that would underpin this uh, lawsuit. Did you find the smoking gun somewhere? You know, that many years ago, I don't remember.
0: Okay. (laughs) But obviously it had a positive effect on your regard for getting into the law.
1: It did because I found it to be intellectually interesting. I found the people I were working with to be intellectually curious. And it wasn't a by job, at least not what these folks were doing. So I, I enjoyed that aspect of it.
0: So at the New York Civil Liberties Union, were these people who were full-time lawyers or were they people who were doing this on a part-time basis or volunteer? or Was it a mix of things?
1: They were the full-time lawyers. Okay, And I was there free intern for the summer to help them with the legwork.
0: Well, that, you know, had to be good for them and good for you simultaneously. Exactly. exactly. It's interesting with the Civil Liberties Union, and of course most people think of the American Civil Liberties Union, that there are times that they take on clients or causes that are not universally popular. And yet I can't help but feel like that work has preserved the rights of so many different people and so many different groups in the history of our country.
1: Yeah, depending on your politics, you could be either for or against what their positions are on any particular issue. But I think if you realize that the gravamen and what they're doing is is well founded in the Constitution and our foundational laws, I I think that they serve a very strong very strong positive purpose in this country.
0: Have you ever thought about doing more civil liberties union work? In my retirement. Okay, (laughs) all right. So maybe 15, 20 years from now.
1: Is that what you're saying? Hopefully not, but.
0: (laughs) All right, so your path led you to law school. How'd you end up in North Carolina? It seems incongruous.
1: It was very incongruous, but I had a choice back then as between uh, Boston College, Georgetown Law Center, and the University of North Carolina. And I was about to get engaged at the time. So the concept of where we ended up involved the uh, desires of my fiancé at the time. And quite frankly, when I got to UNC, it just was everything that Rochester wasn't, first of all, in terms of climate. Secondly, it was a, a lovely small college town, very cosmopolitan considering the size of the town. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And I had a very, very, very positive experience with the dean of admissions there. Judge Byrd? I mean, Dean Byrd? No. Gelblum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dean Gelblum. And he and I just hit it off from the very beginning. So when I got in there, I kind of knew that's where I wanted to go. And it was a positive thing for my fiancé, now my, my wife as well.
0: Excellent. So you got down to the University of North Carolina and immediately decided
1: you wanted to do mergers and acquisitions in business law, right? I had no idea. And it was the rare person there that I thought really knew exactly what they wanted to do. I was just there taking the first the basic coursework and then would choose certain electives that were areas that interested me and was looking for some inspiration. Did you ultimately find inspiration? Well, I found inspiration from a professor named William Murphy, who was, labor law. was the labor law professor at A feisty character. A very feisty character and a very smart guy. And I thought when the time came to graduate there that I would look for a job in the labor law. But at that time, I was also married. And so I needed a job that would pay me a decent wage because my wife was going to go back to grad school. So when it comes to labor law, you're either on the union side or you're on the management side. Mm -hmm. And so one of the areas that we were looking to potentially move to was Atlanta, where they actually have very large labor law firms. I mean, large law firms that are completely dedicated to representing management in labor law cases. I had an interesting experience there when I was interviewing with one of the name partners. He was a very nice gentleman. He was sitting there, though, in a short sleeve shirt – And he had a very large tattoo of an anchor on his very large bicep. And and he was a Navy guy and very proud of it. And when I asked him, what do they do and how do they do it? He kind of recounted the fact that they go to small towns throughout the South, representing management in the cases where the Norma Rays of the world are on the other side.
0: Norma Ray being a reference to a long ago movie starring Sally Field about... Labor management problems.
1: in Especially in the textile mills in the South.
0: Yep. A fine movie, incidentally, for our listeners.
1: And when you watch the movie, you tend to, you know, affiliate more with the Norma Ray side than you do the management side. And he was describing to me how when they would go to these towns for a week or two – That they were the most unpopular people in town. They would be staying at a local motel. So
0: what would be the purpose of their going to the towns? For labor votes or something?
1: They would go to the towns to, first of all, try to bust the union, if there was a union. Or to engage in uh, very strong propaganda programs to tilt the election towards management. Okay. It's, It's fairly hardcore work and uh, very strident work and when he started describing the fact to me that you know they needed to post security guards out there outside their hotel or motel and when they would go into the plant they would open the gate and they would drive their cars into the plant and people would be banging on their windows and screaming at them and things of that sort and i kind of didn't know if i really had the stomach for that also seems a little bit at odds
0: uh, with working for the Civil Liberties Union.
1: Yes, it did not feel comfortable to me. So that was kind of the end of my attempt to become a labor lawyer at the time. So I took a more broad approach after that and was interviewing for jobs uh, up and down the East Coast. But I'm from New York originally, and I knew I did not want to go back to New York City, at least not at that point in time in my life. And we needed to also account for My wife, who had a master's in public health from UNC and wanted to try to get a more advanced degree in that. So, quite frankly, on a tip from yours truly, yourself, you mentioned to me way back when that your sister lived in Baltimore. And had I ever been in Baltimore, and I said, hell no. (laughs) Why would I have been? I'm a kid from New York. But you suggested that I I visit. And so I did. And And? That changed our thoughts about Baltimore and the area. Baltimore was getting positive press at the time Harbor Place had just opened. And it was interesting because you would go into downtown Baltimore even back in 1981 when this was happening, which is long before all of the inner city development that's occurred in Baltimore since. And the dichotomy between how many people were in downtown Baltimore and how many cultural institutions were in downtown Baltimore compared to Atlanta at the time was fairly striking. Atlanta was, after five o'clock, was just empty. And not be besmirching Atlanta, I was just down there recently and it's a lovely city, but I kind of liked the vibe that I was seeing here. And it fit in very well for my wife who eventually went to Hopkins and got a doctorate in public health.
0: So, most fortunate, so you interviewed with job for jobs here, right. and what happened there?
1: Well, I was offered a job at a small, relatively boutique litigation firm.
0: very well renowned, very
1: well renowned. one of the name partners was a senator from Maryland for many years and uh, was offered that job, felt very at home there at uh, really just seemed like it would be a comfortable place to work. And so that's where I started in 1981
0: and you immediately were doing what you've done ever since right
1: absolutely not
0: okay there you go you see these are the turns in the road people have to adjust in life and that's i think as i compile the trinkoff rules of the road they would be have an open mind about things and be ready for twists and turns
1: well this was a litigation oriented firm and had some very well known litigators in the firm, and I spent the first two years of my life doing large-scale construction litigation, representing a very large contractor from Colorado who built a significant part of the Baltimore metro system that was under construction at the time. And so I was on, on that construction case, and I was one of the litigators who was doing a lot of discovery in that case. Including riding the metro before it ever opened, right? I was down in, in the tunnel on the metro and even walking parts of the tunnel long before they were open to the public. That had to be kind of cool. It was definitely cool. As a kid, I always liked to ride in the front car of the New York subway so I could look out the front. This was, uh, it was very exciting.
0: Maybe if you were claustrophobic, it wouldn't be quite so nice. No, probably not. Evidently not an issue for you. Not now. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So you worked on that at Tidings and Rosenberg. Right. And at some point in time, obviously, you started doing something different. How did that come about?
1: Well, some of it was happenstance. There were two partners that joined Tidings and Rosenberg. One happened to be a friend of mine. Okay. And... He was a well-known bankruptcy attorney in Baltimore. And the other one was a person who brought a corporate practice and a tax practice to the firm, which is something we really didn't have an incredible amount of depth at. And I wanted to have a chance to work with my friend, and I also volunteered to be support for the, the new corporate practice that was coming on board. And I grew up in a family business in New York, there was a, It was a multi-family electronic distributorship, and I was required to, uh, to work for my father during the summers, and I also worked every Saturday. And so I kind of got a feel for business, and I, I kind of enjoyed business, especially mm-hmm. in the kind of closely held genre, which is what my parents had. And I thought this was a chance to do something a little different and a little something interesting, and I took this as an opportunity to learn. So I started doing both bankruptcy law and corporate work. And I kind of realized... And you hadn't had any
0: experience with either previously.
1: I had just very limited experience.
0: So how did you go about learning the material? I mean, that scares a lot of people.
1: Well, and, and I can understand that. Well, first of all, I was kind of a sponge. I did a lot of reading. Whenever I was asked to look at a project, I would read up about the project I was doing, but I would, I would try to go over... The edge of that project and kind of just continue to digest information, and I asked a lot of questions. And this particular partner was uh, a very nice guy, and he was willing to answer all my questions. And I did the same thing with the bankruptcy work. And ultimately, I ended up becoming fairly well known as a bankruptcy lawyer in Baltimore. You know, over even the, nationally, in, as I recall. Well, I I got involved in projects that. You know, we're outside the state of Maryland. And it was an interesting combination of my two experiences because I started to develop an expertise in transactional work emanating from bankruptcy.
0: Okay. Can you – Provide an English interpretation of what you just said.
1: Okay. Well, very often in a bankruptcy case, especially when you're talking about a Chapter 11, which is a corporate reorg. Corporate reorganization,
0: when a company wants to reorganize because its right. debt structure
1: is unwieldy. Exactly. And there are many things you do to kind of refine the debt structure and to try to make it a, a, a workable going concern going forward. But one of the exit strategies is a sale a sale of an entire business, a sale of a portion of a business. And you hear about it on the news all the time. You do. Uh, certain businesses are gonna get rid of you know, one product line or one product division as part of their emanating from bankruptcy. And I started to handle many of those sales. They're called Bankruptcy Code Section 363 sales. Okay. And it was a way to feed both my interest in bankruptcy law as well as my interest in doing a business and transactional practice. And so I was still litigating. But my litigation at that point was mostly confined to bankruptcy court, which is... A strange netherworld. Which is a strange netherworld where you come up against the same lawyers and the same judges again and again and again. And you kind of get very comfortable with the judges. They kind of get very comfortable with you. You learn how to work with the different counsel who are in the bankruptcy bar. And it's also litigation that, that never involves juries. So okay. it's, they're all judge trials.
0: So you wandered into that. Right. And again, an unexpected turn in things. Right. So that isn't really where you ended up professionally, though. It's a component of it, I suppose. But you then took some subsequent turns. And how is it that that
1: happened? Well, so I was doing significant transactions out of bankruptcy. The Hilton Hotel in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Park Sausage. Which actually was a receivership, but park, more Park Sausage mom ah, out remember. of Baltimore was a moniker that I grew up with even in New York. It may be lost on our
0: younger audience, but it was a prominent product on TV all the time. Which and, I and I might add there, there's a sort of famous connection with that, as I recall, that the Park Sausage, uh, you had a transaction with uh, someone of significance.
1: Yeah. The purchaser of Park Sausage was Franco Harris.
0: And again, for young people, Hall of Fame running back, probably the preeminent, and for Ravens fans,
1: evil Pittsburgh <laughs> Steeler. And the uh, the receiver of the Immaculate Reception. The, exactly, exactly. And people can Google that or YouTube it and you can look at it. Right. So I was doing these transactions as well as litigating bankruptcy as a regular bankruptcy lawyer. And... I had been at Tidings and Rosenberg, which is the law firm I joined originally at yep. a law school. And I had been there about 20 years. And what I found was that I thought I needed a different platform for my business work where I'd, I'd be able to have more support. So, so a I, larger law firm in uh, theory. Well, either a larger law firm or a boutique law firm that was more geared towards doing transactional and finance work as opposed to just doing you know litigation. Got it. So that ultimately led me to ending up at Miles and Stockbridge, which is a firm that I interviewed with at a law school and was offered a job in Easton, Maryland, which was a place I had never heard of before. And could not be comfortable taking a job in a town I had never heard of nor had visited before, but I've come since to know that it is a lovely town.
0: A lovely town, although on the eastern shore of Maryland and in 1981, might not have been quite the same as it is now.
1: Exactly. So that led me to Miles and Stockbridge, where I had more resources, and I kept some of my bankruptcy practice, but a lot of it, I also started working with a bankruptcy department that we had at Miles and Stockbridge. And over time, I you know, did less and less bankruptcy work, but kept certain forms of bankruptcy work, particularly some that involved, first of all, some that were very interesting to me. I got involved in virtually all of the airline bankruptcies. I represented a large international airport in Florida, and I also represented one of the uh, national subcarrier airlines, which are the airlines that fly the regional jets, mm-hmm. often under the same flags as the uh, legacy airlines. You don't even know necessarily that you're flying this subcarrier.
0: You think you're on American, but you're on American Eagle or something.
1: Exactly. So I got involved in all the airline bankruptcies, which is something I really enjoyed, and started focusing more on just doing pure business and corporate work.
0: Now, at some point in time, you also sort of took a turn into the real estate development world. Am I right about that?
1: That is correct.
0: And representing... What sort of people or entities or, or, you know?
1: Well, I met various folks in the real estate world.
0: But how did, you know, you're in the bankruptcy, the airlines, the this and that. How did you go about taking yet another turn in your career to meet the real estate people?
1: Well, my first pure real estate client was a gentleman who was referred to me because he had, well, as most real estate developers do, they have uh, each deal. Each project is in a different wrapper, so to speak, and you have different partners. And we're not talking about Tupac kind of wrapper. No, we're talking about back then they were either LLPs – well, they were limited partnerships since they've become limited liability partnerships or LLCs, limited liability companies. They could have been corporations as well, although that's not the favored form these days for most real estate transactions. And this person happened to have an internecine dispute, legal dispute, with one of his partners in one of those entities. And he was referred to me as someone who knew the corporate law involving how to resolve internal disputes. Okay. And he came to me, and I. Now, started... did
0: you know anything about that? Yes, I did. Okay, and how did you acquire that knowledge?
1: Briefly, uh, because I had in representing a whole slew of businesses. Sometimes you have owner disputes. Okay. Especially okay. if they're not family. Even although, quite frankly, you can have owner disputes oh, when they're... they are family. Yeah. I've had a tremendous history of that as well. <laughs> so I did know a lot about. The law as well as the process for how you would try to resolve these and some of the strategies for doing that. And so I started working with him. And he's now been a client of mine for about 30 years. Wow. Through him, I met many others like him. Uh, This gentleman does a lot of most of his development in Howard County. And I met the many others who are just like him in Howard County. And through that process, I started to meet other people who had their hands into the real estate industry, brokers, lenders, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I acquired a greater expertise in doing these transactions, which started with mostly doing uh, multi-tenant shopping centers and multi-tenant office buildings. And it all. Ultimately- when you
0: say you do them, what does that mean from a practical standpoint? What does the lawyer do? Why are you necessary?
1: Well, if you're buying or selling, okay, uh, the lawyer is extremely necessary.
0: Zillion-page contracts. The
1: contracts are probably. 30 to 50 pages long. The due diligence involved in purchasing a building uh, could be quite extensive. Um, You need to know a lot about what you're buying, and there is usually what they call a feasibility study period that you go through before you actually agree to ultimately close. Um, uh, There's also land development work where it's the job of the developer basically to take uh, raw land go through the sometimes very complicated multi-tiered process of getting the approvals you need and the, all the engineering, zoning, needs zoning to be approvals.
0: Done. Is that what we're talking about, or many other things? Environmental, I suppose.
1: You run through in this county, Howard County in particular. It is a multi-tiered approval process. Okay, and you go through all kinds of levels. So
0: how do you know that stuff?
1: It's the stuff you've kind of learned and acquired over time. Okay. You know, there was a first time when you walked through the process.
0: Is it scary the first time you walked through the process?
1: Uh, yeah, but most of the time I was affiliated with people who, who knew the process. Okay, okay.
0: So does that find us in, generally speaking, where you are professionally at the present time?
1: Yes. Primarily I'm doing mostly real estate, although I do represent people on all kinds of business transactions. And by large law firm standards, I I would call myself somewhat of a generalist. And, you know, I I actually think and have advised others that the fact that I litigated for three or four years at the very beginning and then through bankruptcy court, Mm -hmm. which is much more of a wing it kind of litigation, the discovery is less extensive, um, uh, the lead times – for hearings and trials are usually fairly short. Um, I felt that that was a great advantage to me in, in doing transactional work. When I, when I read a contract, sometimes I think about it more like a litigator might. Well, how, do, how does this provision read? And if I were a litigator who was trying to poke holes in that provision, how would I construe or misconstrue it?
0: How would you take it to court and cause mayhem? Is that fair?
1: Exactly. Which So my my basic uh, rule about drafting is I don't care about the language per se in terms of whether my grammar is any better than anyone else's grammar. I have no pride of authorship when I'm negotiating a contract, but uh, I need to make sure that the meaning of a particular sentence or provision is uh, eminently clear.
0: You have had a very diverse and interesting career that has taken many different turns. Is there anything
1: you aspire to do ahead? Um, that's an interesting question. That's why I'm here. Um, um, I, I don't have plans okay. per se. I like interesting and unusual fact patterns, Okay. things that I necessarily haven't done before. Things that require me sometimes even to go back and kind of hit the books and um, school myself on where we are. I'm I'm doing something like that right now, actually. It's a very unusual situation that um, involves a set of facts. That would be a great law school exam. Maybe that can be something you put forward at a law school someday, Paul. (laughs) Yes. There is – I don't know how much folks, you know, who are interested in the – um, the surveying of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, but if you look at the Mason-Dixon line when it gets up above New Jersey, it goes from a straight line to kind of a circle.
0: Are you going to talk about
1: the wedge? Well, I'm not. Gonna, well, I don't know if we're, we're, when you say the wedge, you're talking about the well, same thing. Another day, we'll do that show. But, but. that circle, interestingly enough, count, uh includes within the state of Delaware a small portion of the state of New Jersey. Uh, there is a situation in Maryland, down in southern Maryland, which is not that dissimilar to that, where you have a small parcel of developed property that is actually in Maryland, even though it's in Virginia.
0: I like the sounds of that, and I think we'll end the show with that sort of uh, the riddle that perhaps someday you can appear in the future and you can tell me that a new state has been hatched between Maryland and Virginia that we'll call Trinkovsia or Trinksylvania or something like that.
1: I don't think my client would be that interested in that name because nah. I don't think the name sells, but uh, <laughs> when the situation's o- over and he gives me clearance to talk about it more specifically, I'd be happy to. I think it's an in- it's just a very intriguing fact pattern.
0: Thank you very much, Paul. We really appreciate your appearance today. Bob, is always a pleasure. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.
1: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.